Here are the highlights from the latest episode of Free Talk Live. Visit freetalklive.com for the full episode. In the studio here tonight, it is Ian. And Chris. We talked to the Prince of Pot many years ago, Mark Emery, and that was before the federal government here in the United States put him in prison for five years for the dastardly crime of selling seeds over the internet. And Dana, when I was looking into uh, some of your background, I discovered you used to work with Mark over at Cannabis Culture back in the day. Is that right? Uh, yeah, Mark and I worked together for quite a few years and did a lot of good projects together. So you've had a long history of doing, let's say, drug freedom activism there in Canada. What got you started? Uh, I've been doing this stuff over 30 years now. Uh, I got started in high school, actually. I started smoking pot in grade 11 and grade 12, and I've always been very politically minded. So for a year or two, I would send letters to all of the Canadian uh, members of parliament about drug policy and keep all their answers in a special binder that I had when I was like 19. And uh, <laughs> when I got to university, I started a club on drug policy and spent four years there doing things. And uh, shortly after I graduated, I met Mark and started working together on something that became Cannabis Culture Magazine. But uh, I got started because I thought this was the mo- one of the most important issues out there. Nobody was really talking about it very much at the time in the late 80s and early 90s. And um, so I've taken it on as a life path. We got marijuana legalized in Canada, and now we're working on ending the whole war on drugs, which is a pretty big effort. Yeah, I think I'd come across you at some point you know, within the last few years, started following you on social media. And then last year, I saw you post something about opening up a mushroom dispensary in Vancouver, but not just mushrooms over time. You ended up adding uh lsd dmt and a uh, uh, coca leaf tea i mean you, you've got all kinds of interesting things that you're making available to the public basically anybody that walks in and joins as a member of this dispensary this is something that you you started doing back when cannabis was illegal as well in canada with this sort of idea of kind of putting uh putting it out there even though it was still technically illegal Still something you could be arrested for, but just going right out and renting a, a place, and I presume, unless you own the building, and just opening up your doors and letting people come in and, and buy things that the government says you shouldn't be able to buy. So this goes back a ways, right, to, to the cannabis legalization days, right, this, this sort of tactic? Yeah, yeah. About 15 years ago, I opened Vancouver's third cannabis dispensary. There'd been uh, two others, but they had been very sort of quiet. They'd been open for about 10 years at that time, but they were very quiet about what they were doing, just trying to help people access cannabis. We had some favorable court decisions in Canada at the time around medical use. So we had patients who were legally allowed to use cannabis, but nowhere to access it, which allowed dispensaries to fill in. But what I that was a bit different was we very actively taught others how to open their own dispensaries. So I was very public about what we were doing, and we had dozens of people come through, and we would show them everything we were doing about how to open their own place and encourage them to open their own. And as a result, many others opened uh, in Vancouver and ultimately across Canada. And I really don't think we would have gotten to legalization had there not been hundreds and hundreds of stores all across the country already selling medicinal and social marijuana to people. Uh, sometimes they'd get arrested. Sometimes they'd have police problems. Sometimes not, depending on the city and the mm-hmm. jurisdiction and a lot of other factors. But the, the courts, luckily, in Canada were not willing to put people in jail for very long sentences for selling medicinal cannabis. So it was a lot of work for the police to raid somebody. They'd reopen again the next day. The courts wouldn't punish them very much. That's a perfect formula for mass civil disobedience, which is what we had. And uh, although there's still flaws with how legalization was brought out in Canada for marijuana, I'm trying to use these same tactics now on psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, we're going to be expanding to stimulants and opioids and try to create our own safe supply for all these substances in Vancouver and hopefully across Canada. When you say the courts weren't willing to really dish out any serious punishments, does that mean Canadian juries weren't willing to convict or... Did these not go to jury trials? Like, I'm not real familiar with the the court system in Canada. You know, you mentioned Mark Emery earlier, and Mark was selling seeds to Americans by mail order all around the world, actually. But America was the only country that wanted to extradite him. Well, under Canadian law, he should have been charged in Canada with exporting seeds, not sent to a foreign country, which he wasn't in, to, to face a 
crime there. Right. But in Canada, the courts would have only given him a very, they wouldn't have given him five years in jail for selling marijuana seeds. They would have given him a big fine and maybe a short jail sentence. So we basically outsourced our justice system to the U.S. Yeah, because crazy. They didn't feel it. And that's how it's been on a lot of other things, too. You know, our courts, cannabis, uh, selling cannabis was against the law, just like I'm breaking the law now, selling mushrooms and LSD to people. But I, but the Canadian courts and our precedents that we have, we have the same precedents now around psychedelics and, and psilocybin. Patients are going to the court saying, look, I need this medicine. I've been traumatized. I've, I'm, a, I'm a veteran. I suffered abuse. Something's happened to me. I need these these, these products to help me uh, live a proper life, and I can't get them legally, and the courts have been sympathetic. Over the years, as you've been doing this kind of uh, open-air activism uh, of just offering things for sale that they say you're not allowed to sell, um, have you been arrested a few times? Have you spent some time behind bars? You know, I've only ever been arrested for my cannabis activism once, huh. and that was actually not in Vancouver. I, I was giving away free cannabis seeds. I had access to millions of of cannabis seeds. And I did a thing called Overgrow Canada, where I was going from city to city, giving a talk about the history of cannabis in Canada, then giving away seeds. Mm -hmm. And I did 23 cities uh, across the country. And on the second stop in Calgary, uh, the police came in, they arrested one of our volunteers. There was actually a woman in Vancouver who is very against what I do. And she was calling all of our venues saying, Dana's going to sell marijuana seeds and that's or giving away marijuana seeds. And that's illegal. And some of them kicked us out of the venue. We had to get new venues. <clears throat> but in Calgary, the police showed up. They arrested one of our volunteers. He was going back to our truck to get more seeds, and they grabbed him. So I came out with, like, there was, like, a couple of hundred people there for my talk. It was actually a great story. It actually worked out really well. Often being arrested can work out really well, depending on the circumstances. So I went out there, and I said to the – there was a lot of police there. They had taken this one guy in a truck, and I said, have you arrested somebody here? They said, yeah. I said, well, you should arrest me. It's my event. You can't mm -hmm. be arresting my volunteers and not arrest me. I'm the one giving away marijuana seeds. The officer said, well, I don't really want to arrest you. And I said, oh, well, you're going to. And so I had somebody in the crowd give me some cannabis seeds. And people stuck out their hands. I put cannabis seeds in people's hands. I said, look, there's <laughs> cannabis seeds in my hand. I just gave seeds to those guys. He said, all right, you're under arrest. But he didn't even – he just walked me across this. It was perfect. It was a huge park parking area. He walks me across the whole parking area with my seeds in my hand, eight cops all around me. The crowd's all yelling, shame, shame, shame. Media frenzy. They take me away. It's a longer story, but they take me sure. away for the night. The next day I get out, uh, uh, everybody's happy to see me. It, it, and because of all the publicity, I was hoping to give away one million seeds in the first <laughs> year. And I wasn't sure if I'd get enough attention to do that. But because of that arrest, I was trending on, on Twitter. Right. I was the big, it was national, international media. I was able to give away two million seeds that wow. first year because of that. No other city did the police show up to arrest me. So, so they, they helped also, you. They helped you out yeah, inadvertently. It's, it's almost it's almost unfortunate. It sounds like that uh, they didn't arrest you elsewhere. Right. Well, if I've been arrested too many times, like when you're on bail and you get arrest, arrested again after you're on things. bail, yeah. Yeah. that's yeah. when it gets serious. So I was yeah. worried about that. But every city, the media would ask the police, "Are you going to arrest Dana?" And they'd say, "Well, we got bigger fish to fry. Mm. We, have, we got our eye on it." But it got me so much media. And actually, the next year yeah. I did the tour again. And my lawyer said, you can do the tour, but don't go back to Calgary. You're still on bail in Calgary. You haven't had your trial yet. And I was like, okay, I won't go, but I really wanted to go. So I decided to add Calgary last stop to my tour. I go back to Calgary, media frenzy. Are the police going to arrest them? What's going to happen? Two cops show up to the event. Now the event's ready. They go, if they try to arrest Dana, we're going to link arms around them. We're going we're gonna to lay down in front of the police cars. <laughs> so the police go off. Oh, forget this. They just said, hey, have a good talk. They yeah. just left. So we made the police stand down, a great That's victory. Nice. And when it came to trial, ultimately the charges were all dropped. They took too long to get to trial, so it got dropped because of that. No one wanted to deal with it. But, wow. uh, but yeah, often if you don't get totally shut down, often a police arrest or a police raid can actually be very helpful in terms of getting public opinion on your side, in terms of getting you media attention and awareness. If, if the police end up, you know, you go to jail for a long time at the end, that's not good. But if it's a case like that where one night in jail – that was one of the best nights in my life, spending the night in jail. It worked out really well. <laughs> That's a great story. It, it reminds me of years ago, you guys actually at Cannabis Culture reported on some of the uh, the 420s that were happening here in Keene, New Hampshire. Uh, you guys did a really lengthy report on that. And I was hoping our, our friend Rich Paul, uh, a.k.a. Nobody, changed his name legally to Nobody to run for governor here in New Hampshire a couple of years ago. I was hoping he would be here. Normally he's here with us on Friday nights. He was the guy who was leading the uh, activism here in Keene with those 420s that were happening. And a similar story, they, the police had come in, 
Uh, there was probably 100 plus people in this little park in C- Central Square in Keene. Keene's like a 20,000, 25,000 population town. So 100 people in the park's a big deal. And uh, and he was, you know, they were smoking up. The cops came in. They arrested, a, you know, Rich, and they arrested another guy. And they thought that they, they were going to intimidate their way into shutting down these daily 420s that were uh, were <laughs> happening. And then what happened was 50 people from the park marched down to the police station and proceeded to sit in a, a big circle out behind the police station and just light up a bunch of joints and pass them around uh, as they were waiting for Rich to get processed out. The next day, the cops came back, made two more arrests, and the activists went to the police department again, this time going inside the police department, <laughs> proceeding to smoke cannabis in the police station lobby. The police did absolutely nothing uh, about that. It made for some really awesome video to see people uh, smoking up inside the police station. And then after that, they didn't come back again. I, I wasn't here for that, but that has, that is absolutely yeah. the best story, I think, out of Keene. You know, we're doing well over a thousand tests a month now. We have wow. four of these machines. It's it's we have a location. We're we're about to get a, a mobile lab set up, a truck we're retrofitting so we can drive around and go to events, go to concerts, things like that. Yeah, that's a great. And idea. we also take samples by mail too, not just not just in person, right? So from all across Canada and really anywhere in the world, we don't advocate other countries to send us stuff because we don't want anyone else to get Risky. in trouble. But yeah. if it arrives in our mailbox, we will test it and email you or text you back the results. And that mailbox has my name on it. You're sending your samples to Dana Larson, Box, whatever. <laughs> That's awesome. So I, I think I've received more. I think more people have sent me drugs than anybody else in the world ever. I don't think anybody else has received thousands and thousands of people sending them little samples of drugs in the mail like I have. So I, I've been trying to get Guinness records in on this, but for some reason they're not taking my calls. But uh, here in the United the most, States, most- uh, and I believe in Europe, there's the folks. Of, I'm sure you, you're familiar with Arrowid.org. They're yeah. involved with uh, DrugsData.org. Used to be EcstasyData.org, and that is uh, a pay per testing. So you pay, you know, forty or fifty bucks. It might even be up to a hundred now with inflation. But uh, you know, it's you got to send cash along with. Uh, the drug sample, you don't get it back, obviously, and it's it's all done anonymously when they, they do it there, but it's done at something called Drug Detection Labs. They can't tell you what the percentages uh, of are of, like, let's say you, you send in an MDMA sample, and they, they can tell you, yes, it's real MDMA, or, yeah, it's MDMA, but it also has this, or it has these other things that doesn't have any MDMA, so they'll tell you what's in it. But there's like a DEA restriction here on actually giving the the percentage breakdown or the the amount of milligrams or whatever. So you really don't know exactly. You know, interesting. If it's fifty fifty or whatever, you really can't tell. I, I wonder what the restrictions are like. Like, what's the logic on that? It's it's some DEA restriction on the lab. They're just not allowed to. They can get that information. Yeah. They just can't. They can't share it. Huh. Does this machine that you guys have give you an actual like breakdown of what is in this sample? You get a percentage. There are limitations. So mm-hmm. if, if it's under like, around 5% of the sample, it's hard to pick up. So we also use test strips for things like fentanyl because fentanyl might be under 5% of the sample, but still mm. at a level that can cause harm. So we'll use test strips as well for benzos, for fentanyl to see if it's in there too. We can give a percentage, but it's normally a range. We can't mm-hmm. necessarily give an exact one, but we'll say, well, this is about 40 to 50% MDMA, 20 to 30% filler or whatever. Right. We can give those kind of ranges, right? Okay, but it's hard cool. to give it a very precise number, but we can give enough to make help the user make an informed decision. Right. And often, you know, we they have, often we find out it's not the drug they thought. They might think it's MDMA. It's really MDA. Mm-hmm. Those are often sold interchangeably, even though they're kind of totally similar, different. but they're also quite different in a lot of ways too and and so we get a lot of that sometimes it's a matter of life and death other times it's just a matter of it's not quite what you thought it was or it's been cut it's been cut with something harmful sometimes that won't necessarily kill you right away but it's not good (laughs) for you to be ingesting on a regular basis right you were saying you guys are processing a thousand samples every month uh, at just this one location, it's thirty something samples per day. So you guys are definitely busy. I was looking at the website where you have the test results, and you know, of course, you list what did the person think they were buying, what did they actually uh, end up buying. This is a huge harm reduction project. You may have saved lives here, Dana. It's a very nice uh, thing that you're doing, and as you said, this is being funded through the profits that are being made at the you know your store locations, right? 
Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. We, we were, Originally, it was all funded by our cannabis sales. And now that our mushroom dispensary is getting busier and generating revenue, we're kicking in from there as well. But uh, I don't think anybody else is doing anything like this in the world. We're actually up to around 1,200 tests a month now. It's getting quite busy. Uh, and like I said, we're almost at our 50,000th one tested. But yeah, it's entirely funded by, by cannabis mushrooms and a little bit of public support but no money from the government at all about what percentage of the testing every day is coming in through the mail versus walk-ins just curious uh the mail is probably around 10 percent 15 percent of the total wow. they've both gone up quite a bit if you look at the chart what since we started it's quite a significant upward curve yeah. on both of them uh and uh and i think there's more potential for the mail in some ways but absolutely it's uh they're both they're both quite busy but the mail's around 10, 15%. You know, it, although it's free, you've still got to pay to send it in. Obviously, sure. we get the test result back to you the same day we get the sample, but you've got to wait for the mail to arrive. Most right. folks that are getting a drug tested are and planning on taking that drug fairly soon after getting their test <laughs> result. Right? But, uh, but certainly, you know, the mail, we can reach a lot of places in Canada uh, where they often have less options on who to buy their drugs from. Also, in a real small town or up in the north, lot less options out there to access and certainly getting it tested is very difficult now you said people wait around for the results do they get the drug back or uh is it yeah if you want if you if you want (laughs) in fact we only require a tiny little you know very small head Mm -hmm. of a pin kind of sample but we absolutely do give it back to you if you want it back wow Uh, that's not a problem at all and we do return quite a few of them we don't return them by mail obviously but if you're there in person it only takes about 10 minutes to do the test it's amazing sometimes there's a lineup so you might have to wait longer because we're we're trying to get those done out of the way so if it's a long wait we're happy to text you Mm -hmm. call you email you or we can give you the results in person on a piece of paper whatever you like incredible i I love how you're you're kind of creating a free market solution to authenticity uh of, of the products that you're buying as opposed to you know government doing it through some sort of licensing uh model i mean if you had a government doing it it would take you three months but we're not if it was it was a real free market thing, we'd be making a profit at it, right? And we're not making a profit, so it's more of a charitable action from our from our our, our service. But I mean, yeah, okay, the fair enough. The government in BC does offer drug testing. They offer it as well as a service. The province does. They've just been gearing it up. They have about four times as many machines that we have, and they do about one third of all the tests in the province are now done by the government. Two thirds are being done by us with a quarter of the re- of the of the machines and a tiny fraction of the resources when the government does drug testing in Canada it's usually more for academics to be able to judge the trends and write reports about what's happening mm-hmm. it's not really geared for drug users yeah. so much and this is about like getting a sample so they can do some kind of academic thing and for me it's not about ap- academics. It's about drug users being able to know what they're getting. Right. And survive it. Uh, you know, su- getting some bad stuff, not taking the bad stuff. Yeah. This is a huge uh, harm reduction thing. And I suspect the government's not going to give you a 10-minute turnaround either. You send it in. The no, they, actually, a lot of them, they'll pick it up on Thursdays. You get your results back on a Saturday. If you drop it off on a Monday, it could be a five-day yeah. wait yeah. to get your results back. And so, yeah, they're not as busy. The people working there like would like to do more. So we actually also provide the training. To to learn how to use one of these machines, you've got to spend a fair amount of time shadowing somebody else. Mm-hmm. And because we're the only place busy enough, we're we're providing the training for people who ultimately go on to work for the government lab. Because if they try to train on the government machines, they're not doing enough tests. It takes them forever to get their hours in. So we're actually, in a way, subsidizing the government's efforts on our end. So you opened up a mushroom dispensary, what, a couple of years ago? When did that uh, get started? Yeah, well, we about three years now. Mm-hmm. Um, we we opened it originally as a coca leaf cafe, and then we brought in mushrooms a little later, and then we added LSD and DMT and other psychedelics. We sell peyote as well. Uh, we also sell a herb called kratom, which you're probably familiar with, I would imagine. Yeah. But uh, kratom is is kind of an illegal gray area in Canada, but it's really useful for those who are want to substitute for opiates. Right. Um, so we're the only place in the world that we're not the only mushroom shop, but we're the only place in the world you can walk in the door and buy mushrooms, LSD and DMT. I was looking at a story in the Vancouver Sun about the uh, the cafe that you have, which is the Coca Leaf Cafe. Now, is that part of the uh, the mushroom dispensary? Are they the same building? What's that? You know, how's same it? Same space, same okay. space. Basically, ha- on the one side we have the cafe part, the other mm-hmm. side we have the mushroom dispensary part. So you can come in, get a Coca Tea, get a sandwich and a cookie or a bag of chips or whatever. Hang out. It's a nice space to hang out. We got a lot of beautiful art on the walls. 
uh, or you can just come in, buy what you need, and leave. So it's all one location. We've got a second location for our mushroom dispensary we just opened mm-hmm. uh, in a very busy kind of area downtown. Our first shop is kind of in the downtown east side of Vancouver, which is sort of on the edge of what's a lot of homeless people, some street tents, that kind of thing. Our second location is in a very busy kind of urban area, and we're looking at expanding to other spots in the city. But the Coca Leaf Cafe and the Mushroom Dispensary, that's one location together. Uh, They said here in this article that the city of Vancouver issued some sort of a notice to quote-unquote cease illegal activity, claiming that the sale of psilocybin products is not permitted and they can't issue a license. Uh, What happened with that? Did they continue to escalate the threats? Are you in the midst of some sort of a case? What? Where'd that go, if anywhere? We've actually got a court uh, case coming up next Friday, one week from today. But uh, basically, when we open cannabis dispensaries, they often would not get a business license. You would just open your location, and then the city would come after you eventually. And, and, and their weakness was, you don't have a business license. We don't care what you're selling. Trying to get into the whole medical marijuana argument, they were losing that. But they win the argument, no business license, we shut you down. And eventually, mm-hmm. they got an injunction against a lot of dispensaries after years in the courts. So for this place, we got a business license. I opened as a cafe. We got a business license as a cafe in retail. Then we added in some retail, mm-hmm. which was the psychedelic. So now the question is more about, well, we have a license, but are we operating within that license? And it's a very <laughs> different legal question that I think we have a lot stronger case on. Hmm. Um, but the city kind of felt that we tricked them, I guess, by by getting a license and then introducing some of the psychedelics. So they're claiming we don't have a license, but that's not true. But we'll, we'll see what happens in court next okay. week, uh, next week. But, you know, I, the, the, the result of this court case will not be like either we're shut down or we're totally free to do whatever we want. It's the beginning of a long stage of many court battles over many years. <laughs> uh, the end result of this series of court battles, probably in a worst case scenario, Maybe we have to pay a fine or something. Hmm. And in the best case scenario, we win against the city and they're forced to leave us alone, which would be an amazing precedent for yeah. other shops. The city of Vancouver has the power to give a license to a shop selling an illegal drug. And we know this because <laughs> before cannabis was legalized, they licensed many cannabis dispensaries. So many were opening. They were losing control. They said, well, we, we at least want to put some rules in place. We at least want to keep them from being right next door to a school or from there being three on the same block. <laughs> so they wrote some bylaws about cannabis dispensaries years before they were legal. So Hmm. they have the power to do that. They could license mushroom shops. They could license heroin compassion clubs if they want to at the civic level without changing the federal law. That's what I was saying. Every level of government is involved, right? So the the Vancouver Ah. government has the power to even do these things if they want to. doesn't mean we're not breaking federal law, but it really sets a precedent within the city. Uh, but we'll see what happens. They're they're pretty nervous about, you know, they, the city council really just wants to pretend we're not here sure. and ignore it because whatever side they take on it, they're going to get people complaining at them. Right. So they try to not to try to avoid it. And they, that's what happened with cannabis. They avoided with cannabis until there was 100 shops in the city. <laughs> and they were like, oh, we got to do something. Where do those all the shops come from? And now we're at the same stage. They're ignoring it now. There's about 10. There's about 10 shops in Vancouver now. Two of them are mine. Uh, there's going to be 50 by the end of this year. 10 shops, just to clarify. Going, oh, where did all these shops come like Selling mushrooms. Mushrooms, least. okay, okay. Right. Uh, nice. Yeah, no one else, as far as I know, is selling LSD, although I wouldn't be surprised if some start imitating me. Normally when we think of civil disobedience, it's some guy going out and smoking pot in Central Square, or it's some sort of individual, or if you're lucky, a group of people that just go to some public place and they break some prohibition. That's mm. kind of like the... When I think of civil disobedience, that's what, what comes to mind. But, but this is a level of civil disobedience that you got to have some money, right? Like, you've got to yeah. have some money. you got to have some time. Like, he's obviously been a successful businessman. He was one of the co-publishers of Cannabis Culture magazine, which for years was, like, the top counterculture magazine in Canada. One of the top two counterculture magazines in all of North America. There was High Times, and then there was Cannabis Culture. I mean, it was an incredible institution. Yeah, I, I, I'm not a, a cannabis user, but um, I, I've heard, certainly heard of You've both heard of those. Of, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. I mean, so... It's, I, it's that prominent in the... Even, even amongst non Users. Yes, exactly. They, they made a real name for themselves, for sure. And, and as I was saying, they reported on what we were doing here in Keene back in, in 2009 with the 420s here. So uh, really appreciate the work that they've done. So obviously he was very successful at what he was doing and has the money to where he can go and get into a commercial lease. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's what, five-year minimum that, mostly, commercial that's leases? St- that's pretty standard, um, right? five-year minimum. And it, there's usually... You know, there's usually a lot of cost to it too, just yeah. because there's. I mean, you got to renovate the building. When or you're whatever. looking at 
space to rent. It's it's whatever the price is. There's usually double that. Sure, because they have the fees that come in. Uh, what do they call them? Triple net, I think, is the I code. I can't remember exactly what they are, but like there's yeah. like grounds fees right. and. Yeah, or well, something to akin to. It includes the yeah. clearing the snow, right, and putting right, salt right. down, and clearing the parking lot yep. during the winter time. And then and, you know, you know, you got to get internet access and utilities sure. power and yeah. power bills. It's a big and, deal, right? Right. It's a big deal to open any business, let alone all the stupid permits or whatever nonsense. And yep. he's, he's in court over that, as he was telling us. But the amount of money that you have to put to sink into something like this, and then you know, we haven't even talked about the inventory. Right. I mean, it's one thing to source legal products from legal places it's a whole other challenge to source a reliable supply because that's one of the problems in the black market is it isn't the most reliable place because you know people get arrested sometimes and the supplies dry up or uh, the border patrol snags the product as it's coming across the border or Hmm. whatever yeah it's it's interesting um usually what you do in situations like this is you plan for a certain amount of loss to the product. And, you know, it's funny because it, I sort of understand this from, from you know, being in the electronics business. A certain percentage of the product is always going to be defective. Mm-hmm. Well, the same thing is sort of true in, you know, uh, you know agriculture, just in general. You're going to have a product that's going to go bad on you or, you know, whatnot. And and, and in this case, it's, it's seized. Some of it's going to get seized. Yeah. So you just have to, yeah, you have to, you have to work that into your business model. I presume he has over the years cultivated a a group of trusted sources that are fairly close to him, right? That, you know, you don't have to go across the border to get mushrooms. You can just, you know, a grower in Vancouver or something, right? So I'm sure there's some stuff that's coming local. The marijuana is probably coming local, the the mushrooms. There's probably a chemist uh, in Vancouver or in, you know, Canada that's doing the LSD and and things like that. So I, yeah. I imagine he's he's going as close to home uh, as he possibly can. But these are all big challenges and this is this is big level civil disobedience. It takes a lot. You put a lot on the line. Not only could you lose the entire inventory to a raid and whatever cash uh, you might have on hand because that's going to it ain't coming back. No. Right. Yeah. Uh, you could also lose your freedom. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, for him to just get on here and admit money yeah. laundering, right, like on the show. And, and you, know, you know, what's interesting Wild. is, and I don't know how it is in Canada specifically, but, you know, you could you can basically end up with a situation where you I don't know if I would say, well, I guess. Yeah. Even if you win the case, you could you'll, you'll you may still lose your inventory. Um, yeah. And because good luck getting that back. It's it's illegal. And when we start talking about like possession laws, if they were to give it back to you, well, they would be able to charge you again because the possession <laughs> is illegal. So even though you won your case, yeah, you know, it's gone. It, yeah, yeah, it's gone. Well, it's always activism when you don't go along with the state. So right, what, right. You're, what you're talking about would be a non-cooperation, right? When the state puts the screws to you and you don't go along with what they want you to do, which is take the plea deal, then you're not, you're, you're still exercising your rights, in the form of you're not just doing what they want. And so uh, to me, it was it's important to make a stand for what you believe in. And that's why I really love what Dana Larson is doing there in Vancouver. And I hope it catches on. And maybe it is because I've got a story here from MSN and originally the Los Angeles Times that in Los Angeles, there's now uh, what was just a cannabis dispensary that is now selling some magic mushrooms. It's in a rundown shopping center in coastal L.A. County, offering the standard fare, pre-rolled joints, vape pens, a wide range of edibles, and a selection of smoking accessories. But there's one extra class of items that is distinguishing the storefront on the county's suburban fringe. It's a glass case displaying magic mushrooms and a variety of items containing psilocybin, which is the compound that provides said magic to those who consume it, a compound that is still illegal statewide. As the state legislature considers a bill to decriminalize several psychedelics, including psilocybin, some L.A. state or area businesses are openly selling the potent hallucinogen. Although cannabis is legal statewide, no Southern California municipality or county has followed the lead of Oakland and Santa Cruz by decriminalizing magic mushrooms. And just to be clear, I'm pretty sure that in Oakland and Santa Cruz, the decriminalization of magic mushrooms only has to do with the possession of them. They did not decriminalize the sales uh, of those things. But regardless, uh, according to the story here, there's a thriving market for the fungi and other psychedelics. 
And L.A. entrepreneurs have long taken advantage of the relative scarcity and high demand by selling them illegally in gleaming storefronts and in parking lots. L.A. County Sheriff's Department served about 50 search warrants at dispensaries selling magic mushrooms in the last six months alone. So they are not being ignored. They are being targeted. Meanwhile, there is growing support for legalizing or decriminalizing psilocybin and other hallucinogens among psychologists, researchers, veterans advocates, and others who've witnessed mental health turnarounds after psychedelic treatment. And we've seen a lot of the studies here on Free Talk Live looking at these psychedelic uh, substances and seeing they've just had tremendous results for people, whether it be PTSD, uh, depression, for instance, anxiety, even other drug addictions. Mushrooms, for instance, have helped people defeat things like alcoholism or uh, cigarette addiction, nicotine addiction. So they're very, very powerful substances that can almost kind of help rewire the brain and address some significant uh, problems that that one has in life. But that's not going to stop the sheriff's department from coming in and raiding these places, which apparently they've been doing. And uh, so they're pushing for changes. There is a Senate Bill 58 in California that would eliminate criminal penalties for possessing, growing, and sharing small amounts of several psychedelic substances. But still, that wouldn't legalize sales of those substances. You could give them away, but it's kind of hard to make that sustainable i mean you have to you have to pay somebody to grow these things right like usually people aren't willing to just do this as a charity hey daily digestion listeners this is riley blake i enjoy free talk live and i know you do too but finding time to listen to an entire episode isn't always easy so i produce the daily digest I appreciate those of you who have supported me on Patreon and sent Bitcoin to me to thank me for producing these digests. For those who wish to support me on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash crblake86. If you wish to send Bitcoin, visit patreon.com slash crblake86 for those details. That's patreon.com slash crblake86. Thank you. Alu Axelman is on the line here with us from libertyblock.com. And you wanted to comment on some of the stuff we've been talking about over the last few days. So uh, what else, man? Go ahead. Yes, sir. Well, before I even get to that, those who are selling drugs that are not legal, according to the D.C. politicians, should move to New Hampshire, especially if they love liberty in all other areas as well as drugs. And we have the highest concentration of pro-liberty people in the universe, regardless of what King Mark says. So I think they should move here. And we have so many people here helping that if cops did come we would have 100 people filming them for every one cop there or we'd have jury nullification get them off or we would just secede very soon anyway and then federal drug laws wouldn't apply here anyway well i think that uh if it were to be done here in new hampshire i think you'd want to start at the same level that they did in vancouver 15 or, or 20 years ago which is to say just opening a cannabis dispensary uh take your risk as low as you can take it i i don't know if society is ready for uh open mushroom sales but you might be able to find a friendly jury on cannabis sales i think that's where if it were me that's where i would would cut it off yeah that's where i would start too um with cannabis so anyway speaking of victimless crimes i wrote a whole book presumed guilty that um all about due process violations and victimless crimes is a full chapter and bonnie's reading it right now for the Mm -hmm. audiobook i'm actually i got a book signing event scheduled for June 3rd at a store in Manchester, a nice big bookstore called The Bookery. It's a really nice bookstore. Hmm. And they're going to have me on this Saturday the 3rd from 4 to 6. So it's in like two weeks. Oh, wow. Um, to do cool. a, a book signing, speaking about presumed guilty, signing books, hanging out, chatting with people. And um, I'll have my books and probably my new book uh, preview if it's not published yet, my book, The Pocket Guide to Killing Gun Control. I finally took on gun control in a nice long book, but simple, and it goes from every argument from constitutional to principled to practical actual statistics, everything in the world about gun controls, and then a whole lot of other info at the end just about guns for those who are interested. So this bookstore, do they actually sell your books? I think the tentative plan – I spoke to the manager a few months ago when we set this up. I think the plan is that after Saturday, they will have my books in the store. Oh, great. That's a cool nice. way to uh, to kick it off. So Yeah, it's going to be super fun. So I'm encouraging all porcupines in the Manchester area to come out and show them that a pro-liberty book author, book signing, can attract people, and then they'll want to do it again with, with me or other pro-liberty yeah, authors because we have a few dozen. 
Now, of course, uh, you're also going to be at the Porcupine Freedom Festival. I suspect you're going to have a table there. So I'm sure there's some people that they're just not up in uh, the area at the moment. But if they want to meet you and pick up a copy of your book in person, you'll be able to do that at Porkfest, right? Yes, exactly. I'm going to be at RV1 again. Uh, the It's it's ALU, A-L-U is the name of the site this year. And so it's like the first thing when you come in from the parking lot nice. from that that bar that raises to let the car in. Mm-hmm. If you turn to your left, you'll see me there. I'll be right there, there all week. Me and a few other um, little porcupines I'll probably hire to help sell books when I'm busy speaking. <laughs> um, and yeah, I'll have all my books there for sale, like uh, you know, a few dozen or a hundred of each, and, and they'll be for sale for gold back, silver, crypto, fiat, and barter all week long. And I'm giving a few talks about my books and stuff like that. Um, I'm hoping the Pocket Guide to Killing Gun Control will be totally published and available, and I'll have a hundred copies there by then in a month from now. Wow. Um, so that should be super exciting too. It was a uh, 51-year-old man named Jerry Martin who apparently got himself a mobile trailer attached to some kind of truck or whatever and pulled it up in the downtown east side area of Vancouver, setting up shop and making sales of cocaine, crack, methamphetamine, and heroin. Uh, and the v- Vancouver police have, well, arrested him and I presume confiscated everything. Uh, Wednesday that week, the CBC News spoke with Jerry Martin about the launch of his mobile drugstore. He told On the Coast that he planned to sell illicit drugs in small quantities up to a maximum of 2.5 grams. Remember, we learned from Dana, I did not know this, but in Vancouver, and I think he said it was the whole of British Columbia, they had decriminalized possession of up to 2.5 grams of things like heroin and you know, mm. methamphetamine or whatever, but for whatever reason, they didn't decriminalize possession of uh, some of the psychedelics, which is weird why they would do the hard stuff, but not the not as hard stuff anyway. So I guess that's what motivated him. He was like, you know, OK, well, now that it's decriminalized, he wanted to go sell it, which, of course, they didn't decriminalize the sale of those things. <laughs> of <course not. laughs> they decriminalized the possession of them. But, you know, kudos to him for being willing to take the risk. And it wasn't just the risk of the police putting him in handcuffs. He also was wearing body armor in his mobile store to, you know, presumably because he thought there was a chance somebody was going to rob him who weren't the cops. Oh, wow. Right? I I was assuming that the body armor was to protect himself from being shot by the cops because they, you know, those guys like to shoot people. Well, I mean, that are, that's a, a realistic possibility as well. But, I mean, if you've got some crackheads that know that there's a big crack supply yeah, at the corner of whatever it was and wherever, apparently Maine and Cordova streets, one of them might just get it in their head that they can yeah, just go yeah. ahead and take the crack yeah, instead, of, uh, instead of pay for it. Uh, earlier this year, a three-year project pilot approved by Health Canada did decriminalize possession of up to 2.5 grams of opioids cocaine, methamphetamine, and MDMA for British Columbians age 18 or older. Uh, The police spokes bureaucrat stated that the VPD supports harm reduction services and decriminalization. Quote, however, we remain committed in our position that drug trafficking will continue to be the subject (laughs) of enforcement, unquote. Which, you know, it just doesn't make sense. If people understand that Drugs should be decriminalized, that there shouldn't be criminal penalties for people who have a health problem, right, Luke, who are addicted to something. This is a personal problem. This is a, a problem that affects the, the individual. Now, you can argue, yeah, but it affects other people because then they're going to steal to get the money to buy the, the stuff that they need or, you know, they may do something crazy while they're really high. But the fact is prohibition drives prices up. So that's what drives people to have to steal in order to purchase the drugs. You know, you know, you know, it just seems so insane, though, to argue that you should be arresting people in a crack addicts uh, because of the crack rather than actually arresting them because they stole stuff. Right. Like, like, sure. I I get this arresting them because they stole stuff, but that doesn't necessarily mean every crack addict is going to be stealing stuff. Well, and now they are decriminalizing possession. So now they won't be arresting, presumably. I don't know if that they can still confiscate because I know that in. was it uh, Portugal where they've had drug decriminalization right, right. for 20 years or something like that? I believe they can still confiscate the drugs and then they like force you to go to a treatment program or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there's still some kind of coercion yeah. uh, going on there, but you won't get a criminal charge. You won't have to go to, to jail. Uh, so it's still a, a big step in, in the right direction. 
Major, you're on Free Talk Live. Hey, good evening, guys. Hey. Yeah, you were talking about uh, California and the uh, cops saying, well, we shut one down and they just pop right up. It's like playing whack-a-mole. Mm-hmm. Well, that made me chuckle because mushrooms pop up overnight, too. <laughs> they do, don't they? <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> <laughs> and I was I, I, I would have called in earlier with your guest, but I didn't want to waste it on just one call. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you ever tested any STP. What's that? It's a very hardcore hallucinogenic. I'm not familiar with it. STP? Yeah. It, it's a three-day trip, and you go in peaks and valleys. You keep getting higher and lower and higher and lower and higher and lower. Have you tried it? No, I have not, but I talked to a couple cats back in the day. This was in the 70s when, mm-hmm. you know, you could still get real LSD, brown and clear, liquid, mm-hmm. whatever you wanted. You can still uh, get real LSD today, um, Major. Yeah, I, I'm sure you can, but they made the chemicals harder to come by, and you know, as they do. But sure. I wanted to talk. I wanted to talk about the future of AM radio. You wouldn't believe sure. it. The politicians are actually getting along on something. Oh yeah, I heard about this. Go ahead and fill our listeners in. It was definitely something I thought about talking about. Well, Tesla is going to ban AM radios in their cars. They're just not going to put them in. Mm-hmm. And Ford talking about following suit next year. Really? But, yeah, it's an electric yeah. car thing. Uh, there's uh, interference, essentially. The, they got some kind of a capacitor in the radio yeah. to keep it from... And they had to do the same thing with resistor spark plugs back in the day. Yeah, so they there's had, RF so, from So the, what's the, happening exactly? Where's the, there's, so there's inter, it would interfere with AM radio? There's interference with the AM side of radio from some of the uh, parts of these electric cars, okay. essentially. And so they just they don't want to put it in, you know. Like why? Interesting. So yeah, they maybe do, they could filter it somehow. They would do but, FM, but not AM. Yeah, apparently they're doing FM, not AM. Yeah. Okay. What they don't realize is the AM stations have a high power. After sundown, if you got a high power station, you can crank the power up. I can, I got a high resolution AM radio. I can pick up St. Louis, Kentucky, mm-hmm. uh, Chicago. Um, I, I can't remember the farthest place I've ever picked up with clarity, but the ones I'm talking about come in just like it's from, you know, the next county. And right. if you ever have a national emergency and you got to spread the word, well, by God, you better have something that will get more than one state away. And the other thing is that AM radio probably is about half of your stations. It's most of the conservative radio, most of the Christian radio. Most of the radio that's not NBC, ABC, CBS, and CNN. Sure. Yeah, no, I get what you're saying. I mean, not every AM station is a powerhouse, though. There's some of them, a lot of them are less than 1,000 watts or about 1,000 watts. And I remember when uh, I was on Free Talk Live, the second station we were on was an AM, just a tiny little AM station in Sarasota, Florida, 500 watts at nighttime. So at nighttime, they don't, in, most AM stations don't increase wattage at night, they lower. Uh, so this station would would drop its wattage as soon as the sun went down, and if you were driving on any road in the city and you went under power lines, you could hear the interference from the power lines on this particular radio station. So I suspect that's part of the problem with the electric cars is there's you know whatever the equipment is that's causing the interference is in there, and they would have to put some kind of excessive level of filtering to deal with that so it probably would be an increased cost of building the car in order yeah. to protect quote-unquote am radio from being able to be received without interference but what you're calling to tell us about here major is that congress is possibly going to act about this Wait, congress yeah, they're actually getting together on something for a change isn't mm-hmm. that amazing yeah what, I, i'm to not in favor it or to protect it to protect am radio and force car manufacturers oh boy yeah According to U.S. News and World Report, there was a survey done of 20 automakers found that eight of them have stopped offering AM radio in their electric vehicles, including Ford, Mazda, BMW, Volkswagen, and Volvo. While it sounds dramatic, the problem has a reasonable solution. Stellantis, I guess that's a car company, took steps to remedy the the issue by planning to move the radio receivers away from the electric vehicle components in next generation vehicles and say they use shielded components to reduce interference. Volkswagen complained, saying the solutions bring extra weight 
which could impact the range of the vehicles. Extra weight? I can't imagine it's that much I, weight. Though. Yeah, like this just seems like, uh, really? Like, I, I shielding doesn't usually add that much like yeah. yeah i mean we're we're talking about like trivial amounts i think right and if you move the antenna to the back of the the car or whatever then it's not like this cable could possibly be that long in the first place yeah i i don't know what it's a car i mean are they shielding the engine or shielding the cable i mean or what well, i guess it's not really clear what components they're yeah. talking about here I mean, if we're just talking about a shielded, extra shielded cable, would, it sounds like it's probably a cable or, shielded. or moving the antenna to the back of the car where the engine isn't located. I mean, that doesn't sound yeah. like it's that crazy of an engineering uh, solution. But anyway, the point here is not every company has done this. Yep. Some companies have figured out solutions and they've said, OK, we think this is important enough. We're willing to well, redesign and, the car. You know, it, what this really is is evidencing is that there there, there are going to be market options, right? You know, this is a free market doing its thing. The government doesn't need to mandate it. If you no. want AM radio, well, buy the this car is something, that has it. Yeah, this is something to now be aware of and be conscious of. And your car might not come with it if you if you if you aren't aware of it. But <laughs> this is why you should be aware of it. Yeah, I suspect, you know. Uh, you know I don't know what the demographics are of electric car buyers, right? Because they are more expensive cars. Yeah. So it's probably not going to be your first time, you know, 21-year-old or I whatever. Mean, that's. What's the story with satellite? I mean, satellite radio still exists, right? Yeah. Is yeah, that in these cars or are they... Is Some that... of them, yeah, probably. Okay. I know, I know my car... It's usually an add-on option. Yeah, I know right? my car came, I think, standard with satellite, if I'm not mistaken. Maybe I'm not. That's maybe usually... Mistaken, if it's coming but... standard, that's probably being sa- subsidized by the satellite company. Yeah, probably. You get like a, th- a three year or whatever subscription, and then they want you to pay for it. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not really sure, but um, but I know the I know that I know that the reception for AM or FM or both is not as good when you have satellite radio for some reason. I don't know why. Um, but uh, there's it doesn't make any sense there's some reason for it apparently. I've never heard that. Let's talk to Chuck. He's in Washington State. Chuck, you're on Free Talk Live with Ian and Chris. Yeah. Uh, Major Payne, thank you for that call, brother. I, I really appreciate that uh, commentary about the uh, uh, AM radio. <clears throat> I'm actually listening to you on 1340 AM in Needles, California, which yep. has Free Talk Live, and it's on the Internet now. Sure. What if the government wants to know what you're listening to? That's why they're systematically eliminating AM radio. I mean, if if uh, let's let's just say I did something crazy two years from now and uh, it was on a, uh, a thought path and they needed to find out, well, why did this person do this? And they found out that I listened to uh, KTOX on 1340 AM. That would be a valuable information. But at the same time, if you wanted to uh, uh, go ahead and just get rid of crap that people over the age of 55 really don't listen to, and go ahead and get rid of that stuff in your electric car. You know what I mean? So there's a lot I don't of know what you mean. On. You don't know what I mean? Yeah, what are you referring to? The stuff in the electric car, get rid of. What do you want to get rid of? Well, that's well, isn't that what they're trying to do in all uh, electric cars is get rid of the AM radio? No. No, only some companies have gotten rid of AM radio in their electric cars. So what oh, were you proposing? And, and, I'm just making an observation about uh, the way things are uh, going here. And uh, I, I really called about mushrooms, to tell you the truth. <laughs> okay. In Vancouver. Uh, so, you know, how could you charge somebody with trafficking drugs if uh, if they're growing out of the ground right where you're, you know, at in the same city? It's not like it's fentanyl, for Christ's sake. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, they do it because they have guns and prison cells and men willing to use them. So that's how they do it. Uh, but I agree. I get your point. I mean, mushrooms are a natural product. Uh, they do happen on a natural basis, uh, growing out of cow dung and things like that. Um, and people have been using them for you, generations. Well, even the bark chips that you get from landscaping companies, they have uh, spores in them. And uh, actually, hmm. there's a, a new... Uh, uh, genius of psilocybin that's been uh, kind of discovered or rediscovered in Northern California and landscaping around apartment buildings. And it's the same company that's, uh, you know, has the same contracts 
wow, isn't that funny? Uh, that has the same contracts with all of these high-density residential areas and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, hotels and whatnot, their landscaping areas. When they go in and spray in the bark chips, it's got spores on them. So, I don't know. It, 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 this whole mushroom thing, it's a big deal here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, Is there something going on up in Washington State as far as, you know, potential decrim? Sure, there is. There's a actually there's a legislator in my uh, uh, neck of the woods, Ann Rivers. She's a Republican. She's supporting a uh, a bill, and I don't know how far it got this legislative session, but she's supporting a bill to look into basically what the state of Oregon is doing mm-hmm. and looking at uh, uh, look using uh, fungi and, and mushrooms or whatever you want to call it to uh, address mental health issues. With people like Senator Bill Gannon saying things like this in the Senate, quote, for those who say we're a drug prohibition island, I say we are a drug-free oasis. (laughs) I mean... Is he delusional? Is he? I mean, this is not comedy, I don't think. Yeah, I I really want to know. It's hilarious. Are these people being driven from like um nursing homes to the senate like <laughs> they don't ever see the real world yeah because yeah. i mean this hasn't been the case uh, ever really uh, you know um there's been drugs since before they passed these right. you know drug criminalization uh bills and most it, of these people understand that there's a heroin problem in the in new hampshire right like right? how do you think that's working out yeah, it's clearly not a drug-free oasis, and the fact that this man could even say that and be taken seriously is just shocking to me. But yet, he's been in there for as long as I can remember, this guy. He's just, he gets keeps getting reelected and reelected. I mean, we're literally, some of these people, they're going to have to die. I, I don't mean violent or anything like that. They're going to have to age out of this office. <laughs> they're going to have to literally pass die, away. pass away, <laughs> yep. before they go away. Uh, and he's not the only one. Lou D'Alessandro. This is a Democrat who, so the first guy was a Republican. This is a Democrat who is also really old. And he opposes legalizing cannabis. Quote, the message it would say to our children that marijuana is safe and could be used without harmful consequences and nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, this is just crazy logic. I mean, we have alcohol that's legal, yet it's the totally state sells safe. it. Yeah, it's totally safe, it, kids. Drink as much alcohol as you want. Just because something's legal what? doesn't necessarily mean it's like a good idea or safer, you know, anything right. like that. Um, there's all sorts of products on the market, like cars and motorcycles. And, you know, there's different levels of safety, you know, you know, for example, with like a, a motorcycle, it was potentially more dangerous than maybe a, a car because, you know, you know, there's definitely less around you to Correct. protect if you get into an accident. Right. But that doesn't mean we ban motorcycles. No, in fact, in New Hampshire, you're allowed to ride a motorcycle with no helmet on. Right. By definition, that like, is an unsafe activity. How How is it sending a message that it's safe if they legalize it? It's absolutely ridiculous. And the fact that the legalization movements have been active in New Hampshire and everywhere else for decades, this guy has been in hearing after hearing after hearing where people have explained these things, yeah. and he's still saying the same old drug warrior refrain. It's the same old line. You know, you know it's it's interesting because at the same time just whether something is legal or not legal doesn't make it safe um or not safe, right? Like of it's, course not. <laughs> I got some bleach under the sink. You can go drink it right now if you want to do something unsafe but completely legal. Yeah. Uh, now, there was at least a few sane voices. Donovan Fenton, who is from this area, he's a Democrat, he pointed out that uh, there's major revenues that the neighboring states are getting. He said, these are big numbers. These revenues are significant, and New Hampshire is kept from getting these dollars. Yeah, of course. People from New Hampshire are going to Vermont. They're going to Maine. They're going to Massachusetts. They're going to whatever's closest, and they're buying their marijuana there if they're not just buying it on the black market still. And there's a lot of people doing that. And you you can see the cars in the parking lots. It's a federal crime that they're committing when they buy from one state and then cross state lines in order to bring it home. But they don't care. 
They probably don't even know that. I mean, you know, the humorous thing about this is it is, but at the same time, the federal government doesn't have the resources no. to go after the small time, you know, drug user. It's they, they don't. They don't even go after. It's. I think it's somewhere. I think it used to be, or maybe it's now three million. I forget. But there's something like if it's under three million dollars for like financial crimes, the FBI doesn't even investigate. <laughs> so do you really think they're going to be going after somebody who's you know? And it's a different department. It's not going to be the FBI. It would be the DEA. But the DEA isn't going to be investigating small time no. drug dealing, let alone you know a user crossing the border. What else here? Uh, Senator Denise Ricciardi, who's a Republican from Bedford, said the pricing of legal pot will be too high. Quote, this is a segue to the illicit black market to come in and undercut and cause more harm, more addiction and more death. Yeah, it's a really confusing perspective. And if she was actually coming at it from that perspective, I mean, minus the whole death and addiction thing, because that's ridiculous. We're talking about marijuana here. No one's going to <laughs> die unless a you know a pallet of it falls on top of them from off the Walmart roof or something like that. You're not going to die from smoking cannabis. So just putting that aside, you could argue correctly that if taxes are too high, black market sellers would still have the lowest prices, and so therefore people would still continue to buy in the black market. That's what's happened in California. That's what's happened in states on the West Coast where they've got like 25% tax at wholesale, 25% tax at uh, at the, the grower, 25% tax at retail. So, I mean, it really pumps the price up unnecessarily on the legal market. I mean, but doesn't that just uh, make the argument that it should not be it regulated? It should have no taxes. Right. Yeah. There should be yeah. no taxes. There should be no regulation because then you're not putting those who have uh, – you know, uh, maybe a better quality product at a disadvantage, and and the people who have less money can afford that better product. Sarah is on the line in New Mexico. Go ahead. Hey, yes. I yes. want to tell you. Did you know? You know, George Nori. He's an ascended master. He What's just, that? He just came here on Earth to teach other people. And, Does and he claim that, or is that what you believe about him? Well, that's what I believe about him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. How do you I know mean, he's not just a talk show host who puts a bunch of crazy kooks on the air? Well, because I was told that he's a breatharian. See, he had a show about breatharians. Yeah. And Why don't you describe the, what that is for our listeners that don't know? Okay, so they're ascended masters. So then they don't have to eat. They don't never get tired. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're they're pretty much from the other side. They're graduates. <laughs> So when they come here, they are like breatharians. They just survive on air. Yeah. And and then just they just eat. And then the breath. Do you actually believe? Said, you actually believe that? Yes, I do believe it. Yeah. Have you ever met one of they, them? No, I never. I never have. But mm-hmm. I heard stories about these breatharians. Like. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We I, had one of them on the air once. I mean, wh- why? Ago. Why do you believe it? Why do, I, why do I believe it? Because uh, when they're graduates, when they come down here just to teach, um, that's how they are. They don't they don't get tired. They don't have to really eat. Um, that didn't answer they, the question. What well, what's the question? I mean, well, that's well you how have they to are. listen first to before you understand what the question is. Why don't you ask it yeah. a second time, um, Chris? So why do you believe what what they're telling you? Right, like. Well, I mean, it makes sense. No, it know? doesn't because make sense. How does it make sense? Well, it doesn't make sense that, let, let's say, I was told that Mother Teresa, she's ascended. So when she comes back, uh, she has a special privileges to come down as a teacher. Okay. And when she does, let's she focus does. on one thing at a time here. I don't want to talk about Mother Teresa and what you believe about her. You said it makes sense. The idea that someone can live off of air. Please explain why that makes sense. Well, because it, you know what? If God wants it to be something, then so it is. So they. Well, so it looks um, to me like God uh, gave us bodies that require calories to operate. And in order to give it calories, you have to put food in your belly 
in order for the body to have the fuel that it needs to continue operating. Now, I'll give you this, right. Sarah. Uh, Sarah, I'll give you this. There are definitely some hard-to-explain phenomena out there, right? So there are right. some people who have, let's call them masters, who are able to do a, a level of meditation where they essentially can kind of shut themselves down, right? Lower their heart right. rate, uh, and they don't need to feed as often. In fact, there are some people that have gone for you know many days without uh, without moving, without without eating and like shocking, like they've been observed by science and things like that. They're pretty tough to understand things. You just heard highlights from the latest episode of Free Talk Live. You can download full episodes, subscribe to our podcast, listen live and more, all for free at freetalklive.com.